All right. Welcome back to another episode of Doublers. This week, my guest is the lovely Sarah Duchovne. Um, Sarah is a opera singer and a fine estate jewelry specialist. Um, Sarah and I met all the way back in the year 2005, which was apparently 16 years ago, <gasps> because... I'm old and we went to the heart school together. So it's really nice to get a chance to catch up with you, Sarah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I gave away a little bit um, that you went to the heart school, but to get get everyone familiar with your background, um, could you share a little bit about where you are right now and what your degrees were in school and kind of the brief journey of how you got to where you are? Yeah, well, physically right now, um, I am in my camper in Georgia. Um, my husband is also an opera singer, and we became full-time um, RV camper dwellers in 2017. So um, we... It wasn't really like a huge transition because we were doing the traveling musician thing anyway. We just figured instead of dragging our suitcases around, we would drag our house around. And it has worked out really well, um, especially in the pandemic, because, um, you know, we were already living um, mobily and um, our our living expenses were not too... Um, you know, it wasn't too hard to pare things down. So you were not paying New York rent. <laughs> exactly. We were not right. paying New York rent. Although um, we have lived in the camper in Jersey City in the winter um, while my husband was doing a Met contract. So wow. we have lived in the camper, um, you know, in New York adjacent. Um, wow. We're going to put a pin in yeah. that and come back to that. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, so so that's where I am physically. Um, but yes, I got my bachelor's in vocal performance from the Hart School of Music, and then got my master's in vocal performance from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and then started um, a regional opera career in California. Um, Went through a lot of life changes, um, went through a divorce, left California, um, kind of had the opportunity to recreate my life, went through a huge Fach change, um, went from singing soubrette and coloratura to singing um, full lyric, very small rap, which I'm breaking into right now. This would have been my first big year of like getting out there with my new rep. Oh, and no. <laughs> that's not happening. But uh, but actually, it has been a year of opportunities in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it hasn't it hasn't all been bad. And then on the business side of things, I've always just been really fascinated with entrepreneurship. I um flipped houses in the Bay Area with my ex-husband when I was in grad school. Cool. Um, and that was that was a really big way to get into um, basically the resale market, mm-hmm. which is what all of my businesses have kind of been in. So that was like a big a big start. And we really just got lucky because we got in at the very bottom of the market. Right. So I can't say we were like great at it. We were just lucky at it. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. Um and then I had an eBay business where I was selling dresses. And then um, during that time of 
reinvention after my divorce. Um, I met my former business partner who, um, had started this great, um, Facebook group called, uh, Operative Address Collection, mm. Suzanne Vinnick. And she invited me to be her business partner. And together we started, um, the online platform Shoporatic, which was a resale platform for opera singers to, um, buy, sell, trade performance gowns. Mm. So, <laughs> um, that went on for quite some time. It was a great learning experience. Um, both Suzanne and I are both running our own businesses now, and we both agree that Shoporatic taught us what not to do. We oh. made every single mistake. We did everything wrong that you could possibly do wrong in a business with that business. So that was a great experience because now we know right. moving forward. And great that you um, got to learn together. Yes. I'm sure having a buddy through all of that is a valuable thing. <laughs> Yeah, and and now in hindsight, you know, it's really nice to have someone to look back with and say, mm -hmm. like, I can't believe we did that. Right. Or I can't believe we didn't know this or, you know, all of those things. And then um, a little over two and a half years ago, I started my dream business, um, Songbird Sarah Jewelry, which is an antique vintage and estate fine jewelry company. And um, it was something I'd always wanted to do. I've always been obsessed with antique jewelry and diamonds. And yeah. um, so I took the risk and I did it and it's been going really well. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I see so much jewelry on Instagram. <laughs> so yes. it, you know, you're, you're reaching, you're reaching the audience. That's yes. great. That is such a cool journey. Um, that's, it's so interesting to go from houses to dresses to jewelry. It's sort of, <laughs> the backwards of, of the size of the items that you're dealing with going yeah. a little bit back, getting smaller over time, but that's, Very true. that's so interesting. So it sounds like, um, it sounds like when you started in the, in the house flipping that you were kind of in the market at the right time. Cause I'm, I'm assuming yes. that that was somewhere after 2008, maybe 2010, yeah. 2011, 2010. when I was in grad school and I'm still kicking myself for not <laughs> buying real estate in Las Vegas because that's where I was. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so it sounds like that was sort of the beginning of the taste of entrepreneurship for you. Um, so can you tell us more about the operative address collection and, and what that sort of grew out of and how, how did that even get started? Yeah. Well, Suzanne started it um, a number of years before I became involved. Uh, she was living in New York City and of course, small closets, small apartments, and the gowns that, you know, female opera singers wear for recitals and competitions mm. and performances are large. I mean, right. they take up a lot of space. They're expensive. We wear them, you know, once or twice and you're photographed and then right. you can't really keep wearing the same dress. So she started the group. Um, I believe it started pretty small just with you know, friends and colleagues of hers, um, just to kind of trade and sell to each other and, you know, right. spread, clear the closet space and, right. and spread it open. Um, so when she and I met, I had already had my eBay business for a while. So I had experience with more of the business side of it. Mm -hmm. She brought the community and the community building, which right. was huge. Um, and we decided that we wanted to make a platform 
that um, was kind of like a Poshmark um, mm-hmm. or a Tradesy or, you know, I mean, there's so many right. of them. Um, so we wanted to have a peer-to-peer marketplace where our users could um, open up their own shops. Um, it was a really good idea, but um, things like that take a huge amount of money um, that right. we didn't have. Yeah. So we built it on a shoestring and essentially grew too fast um, mm. for our platform to sustain. For the infrastructure um, of the site to really keep yeah. up. Yeah. Also, um, she and I, as owners of the company, weren't making any money from the business. Mm. We um, We had our own stores on the platform, so we were you know, supporting ourselves as users of the business. Right. But for all the time that we were spending, you know, being tech support and, and organizing and, and, you know, growing this company, we were not making a cent of that. All of the money from the site went back into keeping the site going. Reinvesting into the, yeah. 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 yeah, like basically just paying for storage so that the site could like continue to exist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we learned we learned a lot that, you know, an idea is great, but not all ideas, not all great ideas are great businesses. Right. You know, right. and sometimes you have a great idea that you just don't have the capital to bring to fruition. So I think, um, you know, one of the main things that I learned from that is that you really have to work backwards in a business. What do you want your take-home pay to be? Yeah. And when do you want to see that? Right. You know, and when you reverse engineer from that point, that really tells you, is this business viable? Is this business worth my time? Mm -hmm. How does this business fit in with the rest of my goals. Right. So, well, and it sounds especially important because you were not only a business owner, but you also had your singing career and that, that involves some time, I might say. Right. So, yeah, that was a really big thing. I felt like my life force was being drained and, um, yeah, it was, it was a really, it was, we were sad when we, learned that we just couldn't financially sustain the company. Yeah. But then when it ended, it was like this weight had been lifted because yeah, it it really, you can't keep something alive that isn't working. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot of work and yeah. And I think it's hard to, I mean, I, I work in tech and it's hard. Sometimes it can be hard to wrap your brain around just how complex something like that is and yes. how much space, because when you're thinking about websites and things on the internet, it can be easy to forget that they require space because it's so abstract. <laughs> and then thinking about like, okay, how is this going to scale across, you know, however many users you had that were hosting shops? Right. Yeah. And uploading so many images right. every day. It was really, mm-hmm. um, but as an idea, as a proof of concept, right. it was great. Yeah. We just weren't the people to do it. And also now that, you know, no one is buying gowns, I feel very relieved that we were forced to pivot what we did. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the timing was was right for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that um as you moved into as you moved into jewelry. Um, 
I don't know. I would imagine that just the logistics of shipping something like that is smaller. Like just the whole thing, you can scale down a little bit because you're just dealing with a physically smaller object. Yes and no. Um, it it's like a new new level, new devil. So um, <laughs> it's a lot more portable. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take up as much space, which is great for the camper. Right. Like I mean, I had dresses in every nook and cranny of this camper, and my husband was like. What are you going to do with all these dresses? Right. So, yes, that that made a big difference. Um, in terms of shipping, um, I ship everything fully insured. Mm. And um, that gets expensive. Yes. And complicated. Um, I ship internationally. So you are, you know, dealing with that, um, you know, Customs and, and duties and all of that are right. covered by the buyer when they go to retrieve that. But you need a working knowledge of how all of that works. You need to know how to do so, the work. Yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah, it, it's just a new set of things, but, um, I love it so much more. Mm-hmm. So it feels worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that this was your dream business and that this was something that you had kind of maintained an interest in sort of the entire way. Um, what, what sort of sparked the interest for you in, in estate jewelry? Well, my grandmother, um, was a huge jewelry collector. So I always loved, you know, going through her collection with her, hearing the stories, um, just, I, I love the emotion that's attached to jewelry and, you know, the older the jewelry is, the more people, the more stories have, you know been attached to it. Yeah. Um, and when I was 16, I asked my grandparents for a, like an antique ring for my birthday. And they gave me this little art deco ring with a small old European cut diamond. Oh, wow. And I took it a really small one, but, uh, but you know, it was old. Like I was like, this is old. So I took it to the jeweler and he was like, Oh, this is an old European cut diamond. I hadn't heard the term before, but it gave me something to research. Mm -hmm. So then I went down the rabbit hole of, you know, learning everything that I could about antique diamond cuts and different eras and different styles and how they're different. And, you know, it, it just, it feeds so much into what I love about opera Mm. and um, it was just fascinating for me. So it's been like 15 or 16 years that I've just spent a ton of time researching and learning really without any vehicle Mm -hmm. to make it useful. But um, it was just something that I loved. And also as a freelance musician, you know, I would see pieces at antique stores and estate sales that I felt needed rescuing, but I couldn't afford to just like buy myself diamonds all the time. Right. So yeah. So I thought, okay, if I can, if I can have a business that's in the same business model as the other businesses that I've done, Mm -hmm. um, but that will allow me to put all of this knowledge to use and shop for other people. You know, let's see, let's see how it goes. So, yeah, because you still get yeah. to do the shopping. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> On someone else's behalf, which is great. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, my husband is really fortunate. Um, he 
still has some work. So he is in um, Oslo right now doing a recording. So wow. we're really, really lucky that like not all of the work dried up, but mm. most of it did. And right. um, I just feel so fortunate that I started the business in time to be at the point now where I can support our household with it. So yeah. um, it's just, you know, I feel very fortunate, you know, that I did it when I did. Right, right. That it was sort of in place and Yes. Already going and already profitable. Um, what was your, I mean, it, I'm sure it has differed across the different businesses, but, um, can you, can you talk a little bit more about, um, how long did it take you to get profitable with some of these different ventures? Yeah. Yeah. It took about two years with this business, Mm. um, because I'm purchasing most of the pieces myself. So Mm -hmm. sometimes I will do, um, consignment, but for the most part, you know, I'm buying it. Right. And, and then of course, like any retail business, I'm taking a markup. But um, when I was just growing my Instagram and growing my my community and my clientele, it would take longer for pieces to sell. So right. my my capital was tied up and, and and yeah, it was it was really, really scary for a while. But um it turned the corner in the nick of time and the growth, I, when the pandemic happened, I just became more intentional about it. So that's right. when, um, that's when the growth really happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I jumped from 3000 Instagram followers to 8,500 wow. in, I think a year or so. Um, and most of that was like pandemic happened. I was like, all right, it's now it's time. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. It's hard to, I mean, my quintet has done quite a bit with Instagram and it's, it's hard to grow unless you just it's buy a your followers, job. but yeah, it's a full-time job. Yeah. And that's the thing with retail that if you're, if you're an influencer, fine, you just need a number. But mm-hmm. if you are actually selling something on Instagram, your followers need to convert. So right. it's not so much the number or the ratio. It's, are you actually re- reaching the people who are interested in buying what mm-hmm. you have and are they buying? So, yeah. um, so it was interesting to build the Instagram following. Um, I tried to learn as much as I could, but I felt like a lot of the, um, a lot of the, like, um, oh my gosh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the advice on it right, right. was coming from an influencer standpoint, which is totally different oh, okay. than from a brand. Mm-hmm. So, um, as a brand, you really need to make a human connection right. with people. Um, there needs to be a compelling story. Yes. Yeah. And and you need to, I mean, especially with what I do, it's very personal and very emotional. So you need to really be interacting and letting people get to know you. And it is truly a full-time job. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I bet. Do you find that the overlap, um, do you find that the fact that you're an opera singer makes a compelling story for a lot of your customers? Absolutely. Yeah. I think I think that really is the key mm-hmm. to um to what makes my jewelry brand different because there are so many fantastic estate jewelry um you know large large you know shops and yeah. companies and and wonderful individual sellers but the fact that I'm a professional opera singer and I'm a jewelry dealer is something that no one else has. Right. So Right. So that positions you in a unique way. And I'm sure people find you memorable just on that. 
Absolutely. And I think um, the, the reverse of it is also true that um, for a while with the business, I kind of tried to keep them separate because mm-hmm. I thought like, oh, people in the opera world will think less of me if they know I have something else that I'm putting my energy into, which is BS. It's, yeah. you know, it's, but, but that was something that, you know, I, I had kind of like internalized. Right. And then I thought, oh, jewelry people won't think that I'm as serious if they know that I'm not a full time jeweler. Right. Um, and what I realized is that one, it makes me more compelling as a jeweler, but also I'm, acting as an ambassador for the classical music world Mm. with all of these people who either already had an interest and are really missing that from their lives because they can't go to live performances or people who have never encountered a professional opera singer or a professional classical musician. Yeah. And now they have access to one. They can ask questions. They can watch performances. They can see what my life is like. Of course, yeah. it's different now that I'm like not, you know, going to rehearsals right. and stuff. But right. they have that um, that window into that lifestyle. Mm. And I think a lot of people have really like cultivated an interest in opera that they didn't have before. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure the fact that your life has changed so dramatically is another window because my experience has been that many people outside of music don't really understand the impact that COVID has had on musicians. Um, Right. Or even really understood that someone could be making their living doing these things and the events being, you know, that people just don't think outside of their own definition of reality sometimes. I mean, it's, we all do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's really true. So that's probably opened up realization for a lot of folks that are like, Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. She's not going to rehearsals. She's not going to concerts. Hold on. How does this work? Yeah. And I've been really honest, um, you know, with my followers about what that looks like, what the toll is. Um, you know, I think, I think it really, has been great for me, but also really interesting for other people to um, just kind of realize what <sighs> I don't even know how to say it. I think there's always been this um, like glamorous facade over the classical music world. Yes. Um, that has never actually been true, but um, we've always kind of perpetuated it, especially mm-hmm. in opera. Right. Um, I don't think people, I don't think most people who go to the opera realize what the artists are making. I'm sure that they assume that the artists are making so much more. Yes. You know, and for people to now see that artists at the top of their fields have been so, like, taken down Mm -hmm. by loss of work for one year. Yeah. That these careers don't really afford people the cushion to um to weather this kind of storm no. i think has really um you know opened people's eyes yeah there's definitely an assumption i think some of it just comes from you know the old stereotype of like classical music is for rich people or it's a you know some sort of symbol of wealth or something like that 
And so there's an assumption that if you're in it, you must also be rich by association. Right. It's like, actually, let me count the ways in which yeah. I'm not. And, and such a big part of, you know, what we do is going to the cocktail parties, schmoozing the right. donors. We put on this other character mm-hmm. of like host to the patrons. Um, but we're not running in the same circles. Right. We're not, you, you know, can function in that world, but yeah. that doesn't mean you're really part of it on a financial economic level. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so I know for a lot of my followers who go to the theater and the opera and the symphony, um, to really see like, oh, wow, like this, you know, this is a real, um, crisis right. for these people in the arts. Even the people who have quote unquote made it right. can't sustain, can't sustain their life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because to even get to where, to where you are to be singing in productions and ha- you know, having enough, having enough engagements that you're in an RV and you're constantly going somewhere. I mean, that alone getting there, I feel like doing that as a instrumentalist is a little bit easier than as an opera singer. There's just there's fewer people playing the French horn than are singing soprano, for sure. And, I think there's... Yeah. Well, of course, instrumentalists do freelance as well, right? right? But um, but I think the tricky thing with being an operatic soloist is that in America, there's no job security. Yeah. So we're always freelancing. We're not... Um, yeah, you know, there's, you're never employed. You're always right. just a contractor. So I think that's the thing that like, there's no end goal of like having a position with a symphony or an orchestra. Right. Like you're just, you could have a good year. You could have a bad year. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cause there is no orchestra job for a soloist. Right. You're not gonna. Yeah. There isn't even, yeah, there's nothing to that's, I never thought about that, but you're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was like a really big thing in my reasoning for wanting to have a business always, Mm -hmm. because I'm just the kind of person who wants to have some kind of control (laughs) over my life. Right. I feel you on that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it always just made me feel better going into an audition and being like, I can still eat tomorrow if I don't get this job. Right. You know, <laughs> right? And it probably keeps auditioning and singing more enjoyable. I mean, I know that's been my experience. Yeah, because you're not when you don't have that economic layer completely. I mean, obviously it is partially, but when it's not completely tied into your art, it yeah. gives you a little bit more space to be like, do I really want this role? Do I really want that role? Absolutely, absolutely. I guess I think the ability to say no to things that don't feed you artistically is major. Yeah. Cause we've all taken those gigs where you're like, I don't want to be here. I yeah. don't want to do this. I don't want to spend the time. Like, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes you do things for money that are not good for you artistically. Right. Or right. just like crush your soul or, you know, any of those things mm-hmm. and being able to say, no, I, I don't have to do this. I'm not going to do this. Yeah. It is very powerful. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned earlier that you went through a FOC change. Um, yeah. How, I mean, did having your business better enable you to make that change and, and give you more space? 
Yeah. I mean, that was terrifying. And to be honest, it took many years. Mm. Um, I feel like, I feel like I finally, like, I'm finally like, I know what I sing. Um, it took a really long time, but yes, absolutely. Um, the, the ability to say, I'm not going to sing these roles anymore. Yeah. Um, I'm making a transition Yeah, and be able to, just, you know, take that risk um, was was directly tied to being able to have a business on the side that, um, you know, paid paid the bills. Yeah, that kept the money coming. And I just realized, just in case anyone is not familiar with what a FAQ is, could you explain a little bit of what that means? Yes. So a FAQ is the category of voice that you sing, and it's within the bigger category. So I'm a soprano. I've always been a soprano. But um, when I was younger, I was um, a soubrette, coloratura. So uh, coloratura is like really light and fast mm-hmm. and very high. Um, and then soubrette is like kind of a subcategory that overlaps with that. It's all very pedantic. But... Um, <laughs> But a soubrette would be like, like the Inas and the Eddas, like, um, uh, Despina, um, I, Norina, Janetta, you know, like, right, like um, the young ingenue sort of characters. Yes. Young, um, cute, um, kind of secondary uh, characters, um, yeah, and and honestly, that was a great place to be as a young singer, right? Um, because if you're young and you're un- and you're just out of grad school, like you know, it, companies are more likely to take a risk on you in that yeah. than in like the main character. Um, right. And I think I definitely stayed in that for far longer than I should have. Um, some part of me wonders if that was even my voice to begin with, or if I just felt like that's what I was getting work at, mm-hmm. so I should just stick with that. Right. Um, but yeah, I do think that that having a business um, gave me that freedom to to be like I might not work for a couple of years while I figure it out, but when right. I come back, it's going to be with my voice. Right. And, um, so moving into also, lyric, what what sorts of characters does lyric soprano play? Um, so like the roles that I sing now, um, Nedda from Pagliacci. Um, I'm working on Leonora from Trovatore, um, uh, Rusalka. So that um, I, I'll be doing like, you know, like the the Donizetti Queens. Mm-hmm. So I'm not like a Mimi lyric soprano. It's it's all very, it's all very complicated. And yeah, honestly, I'm glad that um, that I have this year, honestly, to figure it out and yeah. like, learn complete roles mm-hmm. just learn them with right like nothing else to distract me um i can afford to keep coaching and right. working with my teacher and I, I mean i just this business is really like it's a godsend yeah i mean it yeah. sounds like it sounds like it's such an engine for pursuing the things that you want to pursue um yes which I, I feel like has been a common theme in a lot of the folks that I've talked to so far in doing this podcast. And I know it's been true for myself. Um, you can just be more intentional. Like you said, you can be more intentional about what it is that you're pursuing and what you're doing as opposed to just sort of 
jumping from one money source to the next and thinking, well, I got this gig, so I better do it. And then going to the next and the next. Yeah. Yeah. It's really true. Um, yeah. I, and also I would like to be able to retire when I'm older, you know, (laughs) like, yep. That's hard to think about when you're in your twenties, but yeah, I'm a ripe 33 this year. So I just turned 34 on the 6th. So yep. like, happy birthday. But I'm like, thank you. Um, but yeah, I, these are things that were never taught in music school or right. I never was like, how are you structuring your money? Are you like thinking about retirement? Are right. you contributing to a retirement fund? Mm-hmm. Like, what does this look like for you? Because yeah. we don't have, or, you know, freelance opera singers don't have the employer taking care of that for us. Right. You don't have a 401k. You don't right. have a pension. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be, cause you know, especially when you're fresh out of school as a freelancer, it's easy to think like, Oh, I got paid say $500 for this gig. I have $500. <laughs> and it's like, actually you really don't. You've got about 200. <laughs> if you yes. go through and you pay your taxes and, you know, you take out medical insurance and you put something in an IRA, hopefully, if you even yeah. know what that is, if you've even opened one. Um, yeah. And it gets hard because you're not always, like you said before, at one point, you're not always making enough that you can take out those pieces. Right. Yeah. And especially yeah, not enough to be able to weather an entire year with no work. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, another thing that having an, a business has really taught me is that the, so you, there's like your top line and then there's your bottom line. Right. And I think for a lot of artists, they see the top line, but then how much of that is going into traveling for auditions? Mm -hmm. How much of that is going into preparing your roles? How much is going into like, you know, the rent that you have to pay so that you can be in this very expensive city for an audition season. Right. So when all is said and done, you may have had a great year, but how much money did you actually make? Right. What did you net? What did you net? Yes. Yeah. How much are you paying on your loans? How much are you? Yeah. I don't know if you've seen this article, but there's a very interesting blog post somewhere on the internet um, called the million dollar voice. And someone did read that. That was fascinating. I'll put a link in the episode description for anyone who's interested in checking it out. But someone went through and did the math and said, and went through specifically an opera singer's career and how the two biggest choices that you can make is where you go to school, so how much you pay for school, and what city you build your career in. Because rent and and the cost of tuition, even if you have a successful career, I think one of the the projections, it was still that you lost $400,000 over the course of 15 years or whatever it was. Yeah. It's not a good business model. Right. It's just not. Right. It's not. No. So, um, so having this business has really made me think about it um, in terms of how we use our money from my husband's career and from my singing career. When I get money from singing, that is a cash infusion mm-hmm. into my jewelry business. I invest that money yeah. into my jewelry business. So I don't even view I don't even view it as in my mind, I don't view it as income. Right. It's just, this is an investment into mm-hmm. the thing that's 
actually making the money. Right. Because the return on investment from investing it that way is worth more than the cash itself. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. And that's, I mean, that's, especially as a young person, even wrapping your brain around that and thinking that way is, is challenging. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. And I think, I really hope that conservatories are more intentional with the way they talk about money and the way they talk about business Yeah, with these young people who are going into extreme debt in so many situations to pursue this thing that they might not even be able to have a career at. And even if they do have a career at it, that career might actually be putting them in financial peril. Right. Yeah, exactly. So like, we need to talk about it. Like, what is your what is your life money business plan? How are you going right. to make this work? Right. Yeah. And you know, one thing that I've wondered is, are conservatories afraid to do that? Because as soon as kids take that class, they'll figure out that they should drop out. <laughs> yes. That's something that I've wondered. But maybe that's the right thing to do. I know. Yeah. And maybe conservatories, this is terrible. I shouldn't be saying this. This is like, but I have to. Yeah. Maybe conservatories shouldn't be taking that many people mm-hmm. who they don't believe can actually have careers. Yeah. Yeah. Because conservatories are businesses now. And who are they serving? Right. It's not usually the kids with the degrees. Right. Yeah. I will say, though, that having a music degree will serve you in so many areas. Yeah. So so I I don't think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll like backpedal on saying don't accept as many people, but present a variety of different career paths with that education that aren't just performance or just teaching. Right. Because there are so many things that you can do with that degree. Yeah. Well, and I think too, that there's a, there's a difference between, cause like I, I know from my experience at heart, um, I started as a music ed major and then a semester in my goal was to become a high school band director. And then a semester out of high school, I realized I didn't really want to go back to high school. So (laughs) I decided to change tracks, but, um, but my scholarship tied me to the conservatory and I couldn't do a degree that wasn't a bachelor of music. I couldn't get a bachelor of arts in music and maintain my scholarship, which was interesting. And so that really gave me a reason to research, like, what's the difference? Because in a Bachelor of Arts degree, 50% of your classes are in music, and then you have a lot more space in your gen ed credits to go study other things, get a minor, get a double major, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but in my, so I went to performance because that had the fewest credit requirements. And I thought, okay, well, I had an idea I was going to be a doctor that didn't last long either. I was having a great time as an 18 year old, <laughs> but um, exploring lots of things. But it's interesting to think about that very small difference. I mean, who cares now that I have a bachelor of music and not a bachelor of arts in music? No one cares. Um, but in looking into that bachelor of music degrees are intended to be like trade degrees. You're learning a trade and that's the point. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, it, it, it makes you wonder like, should conservatories move more towards a model where they're giving bachelor of arts degrees in music and giving their students more space to learn other things, to take other classes. I ended up with a music history degree because Mm -hmm. I got to my third year of college and realized I hadn't really had to write that much 
And I thought to myself, like, gee, I'm in college paying on this money. I'd, I'd really like to take a class where I have to write an essay or something like yeah. that. Um, and, you know, be challenged a little bit more intellectually instead of being focused very much on, like, how to, you know, play the horn and, and being in wind ensemble and things like that. Not that those experiences aren't valuable. Yeah. But I felt that the curriculum of the history degree was a little bit more rigorous. And that's that was giving me a better value for the amount of money I was paying to be there. Honestly, if I could have gone back in time, I would have gone to a liberal arts college with a good music department, mm-hmm. but not a music school. Right. I would have taken lessons, majored in something like maybe language mm-hmm. or maybe business or something, right. had a music minor, gotten the same amount of lessons that right. you get as a performance major, you still only get one lesson a week. Right. You know, pay a little extra for coachings if I wanted to have those on the side. Choose the coaches I wanted to work with. Seek out the people who I actually wanted to learn from. Right. And then get a master's in music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got my master's at a state school. I kind of did it the opposite way that I wonder if I should have, you know, I went to conservatory for undergrad and then I went to a state school for my master's. I had a great education at the state school. Um, I went to UNLV in Las Vegas and I got paid to be there. Yeah. And my, my students, I was a GA, um, and the students in my class would complain. They'd be like, Oh, school's gotten so expensive this semester. And I'm like, tell me, tell me how much is it? Be like, I had to pay $2,500 this semester. And I was like, that was the cost of the meal plan where I went to school. <laughs> like, I know. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you're so right because when you're in school, it feels like if I don't go to the most serious program, then I won't be in that handful of people that really has a career. But it's hard to, to know when you're young that it's, re- it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Exactly. It's really a marathon because, you know, we're yeah. – I turned 34 this summer. Like we're – how long we've been out of school 15 years, 16 years. That's terrifying. (laughs) Right. I know. But think about, you know, how many people do you remember from undergrad? How many people are still pursuing music? Right. And it's not necessarily that, you know, everybody dropped out because they all went broke or something like that. But just statistically there, there just isn't, everyone will not work in music. Right. And that might be a choice that might be life circumstances dictating that choice. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I think that's a really valuable perspective to say, you know, like if I could go back and do it over again, liberal arts school, major in, um, because I'm sure majoring in business maybe um, would have been beneficial for the career path you've chosen. (laughs) I think it'd be great for all musicians, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It should be like a required, you know, at least a class. Right. Right. Just so you know, what is a top line and what's a bottom line? Right. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, yeah, this is this is so interesting. I'm really glad that we're catching up. This is so interesting to I talk know. to you about all this. I'm so glad that I'm not alone in my <laughs> in my <laughs> thoughts about, gee, what, I could, what, what could I do over again? Um, yeah, so just sort of in conclusion, um, speaking of the young people, because now yes. we're... We're, we're getting real close to middle age. Um, yeah. Oh, don't say that. I know, right? <laughs> uh, if you so obviously for any any of our younger listeners who who just heard that, um, yeah, <laughs> we might we might suggest 
considering how to get out of undergrad for the least amount of money and not necessarily worry about the prestige of your degree. But do you have any other advice for, or for even students who maybe just finished music school or are considering their next steps? Um, Do you have any advice for someone who is interested in a more entrepreneurial career path? Yeah, I think there has always been this like weird stigma about having a business on the side. And Mm -hmm. I don't even like calling it a side business or a side hustle. But I would encourage young musicians to um, take some more cues from the mainstream uh, entertainment industry and the pop world. Because we see this business model all the time. Mm. And it is something that's celebrated in, in like the entertain, the, you know, mainstream entertainment business, but has to this point been shunned in the classical world. So, um, Rihanna is like the queen of this. The queen of this. I mean, super successful recording artist, one of the most successful businesswomen in the world. Yeah. Um, Fenty Beauty, Savage by Fenty. I mean, she is like she's everywhere. Wildly successful. Yeah. And I think that is a great business model of how her of course the brands that she's created are really high quality. But would they have been as successful if they didn't have her and her persona attached to them? Right. So and, and you know, I, I think that she's not recording as much anymore or maybe will stop recording because her businesses are so successful. Right. But um, but for a while, it was the two sides of her brand feeding off each other and growing each of them right. vastly. So I really just encourage artists to start thinking about what is your holistic brand and take away the stigma of feeling like all of your money has to come from performing. Like I remember when I was a young, um, like when I was just out of grad school, I was at the dog park and like some middle-aged woman was like, well, do you make all your money from performing? Mm. And I, at that point was like making some money from performing and like, being supported by my ex-husband. And I was like, yes, performing is my only job. Like, what does that mean? That means nothing. That right. means nothing. You right. know what I mean? But I felt like that was like something to be proud of. But if you look at like movie stars and pop stars, not all of their money is coming from performing. Right. Most of their money is coming from their investments and their brands. Everyone has a perfume line and a shoe line and a tequila brand, <laughs> and they're doing, like, movies and TV and endorsements. I mean, everyone is a brand. Right. And I think the classical music world really needs to destigmatize that and get on board because um, it's working out for other performers. Right. Well, and diversifying your income streams is like business 101. Because if all of your eggs <laughs> are really in one basket. <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes sense because, you know, even even looking at somebody huge like like Rihanna, Rihanna can't tour this year. Right. And who buys music? <laughs> exactly. Re- you know, recordings, recording music has almost become a vehicle for creating your community and creating your fan base 
And then you actually make money on the touring and the merch and whatever lines of jewelry and shoes and whatever else that you come up with that you sell. I mean, you're totally right. And I've never thought of it that way, but that's exactly what it is. I mean, the pop world has definitely jumped on that train and taken off with it. Taken off. Yeah. Yeah. So I would just encourage young artists to start thinking about what is your brand and make it authentic to who you are and the things that you care about. Like um, Nick Offerman is another great example. He has always been really into woodworking Mm. and he has a wood shop. And when he was on Parks and Rec, the, the writers loved that detail about his life so much that they wrote it into his character. So, um, Oh my God, who's his character in Parks and Rec? Um, oh, Ron Swanson. Yes. So Ron Swanson does woodwork. Well, that's because Nick Offerman does woodwork yeah. and it's a really cool thing about him. And he has a whole business and he writes books. You know what I mean? So, right. so take, don't try and be someone else, but take the thing that like, you get jazzed about besides music right. and incorporate that into your brand and it makes you a vastly more interesting colleague yeah. and a vastly more interesting performer. Right. And yeah, and just a more well-rounded person in a lot of ways. Yeah. Cuz you've got more than one thing that you're that you're doing and yeah. That's really good advice and yeah, that I guess I think my new life goal is to be Rihanna. I, I think that's what <laughs> Mine I'm going to put on my calendar <laughs> for 2021. Too. I know. She just, I mean, I'm just, I just want to study her and like, she's my business model. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. She does it so flawlessly. Right. And everything she does is high quality. Yeah. So I think it's a goal for us all. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Being more like Rihanna, I think, is a great place to wrap up. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, thank you. And until next time. Bye.